Hi, this is Ron Darling with SNY TV. Um, you know me from covering the Mets, and uh, I hope you get a chance to listen to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. I had a great time. I hope you do, too. Hi, I'm Ron Swoboda of the 69 New York Mets, and you're listening to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Mets Musings is an unofficial, independent podcast covering New York's National League Baseball team. It is not affiliated in any way with Major League Baseball or the New York Mets. This This is Len and Jeff from Baseball and Barbecue. And the one place to go for New York Mets news, past week game reviews, upcoming series previews, interviews, analysis, opinion, and and what's what's going going down down on the farm. farm. It's It's Mets Musings with Gary Mack. So keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. And hello and welcome to another edition of Mets Musings. Hope you all had a great week out there. Weather is getting colder outside, and uh, but the good news is we have a manager. Carlos Beltran has been named the manager of the New York Mets. He's the 22nd manager in Mets history. And uh, no, he's not on the show today. We'll get something other than that, something special, but I wanted to discuss that a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm I'm okay with this deal. I know he's a first-time manager, and I know what everybody's thinking. We just went through that. But I, I think it's going to be a little bit different with Carlos Beltran. He's got a little bit more of a cachet. Uh, he's got a reputation behind him that Mickey Calloway didn't. He's a potential Hall of Famer. And I think that's going to give him a little bit of a, a more say in, in what's going on where I think Callaway was more of a follower. I think uh, Beltran's going to be more of a a part of everything. At least I hope so. Um, and he, he's got the respect of the players, uh, respect of the front office, and I think it's it's going to work out okay. I think we have to give him a chance and see what happens. The again, as with Callaway, the hiring of the the uh, other coaching staff is going to be key in this situation. Who they go with, uh, you know, um, there are rumors that perhaps he would like to have uh, Terry Collins as his bench coach. And uh, I think that may be a good move if they go in that direction, but we will have to see if that's the case uh, at this time. So we have lots. uh, uh, I've got a great uh, interview, if you will, coming up. I went on a tour of a baseball exhibit at the Morris Jumel Mansion in Manhattan, it is called Home Plate, a celebration of the Polo Grounds, the birthplace of New York's love affair for its favorite teams. And uh, it, it's an exhibition curated by Neil Schur. And uh, we're going to give you a little taste of the tour as uh, 
Neil uh, gave it to uh, us. I was joined by the boys from Baseball and Barbecue, Jeff and Len. Three of us went in, and uh, they're going to have part of a, a, an interview that they did uh, is going to be playing on their show, and um, I'm going to play uh, on my show the, the actually the tour section, and I am going to uh, also uh, um, putting together a little video, a short little video of the tour on YouTube, so be sure to look at that at uh, YouTube.com. I think it's slash Mets Musings, but you can just search for Mets Musings on YouTube. Uh, and this exhibit is uh, going to be at this mansion, the Morris Jamel Mansion, until January 5th, so you still have time to get there, and Neil Shear is usually there on the weekends. So uh, you can actually talk to the curator, the guy that created this, and uh, he's got a lot of great knowledge uh, about the exhibit and about New York sports and about the polo ground. So you may want to go check that out. Uh, but let's get back to the Mets news. Uh, Peter Lanzo got, uh, I think he got gypped out of the Silver Slugger Award, lost to Freddie Freeman, but... Uh, he is odds-on favorite to get the um, Baseball Writers Rookie of the Year Award next week. That will be named as well as the Cy Young Award winner. Uh, he has uh, gotten uh, Baseball America's Rookie of the Year so far, and I think there was another one. Uh, he was named Rookie of the Year in the National League, so uh, he is getting his uh, due, but uh, didn't get the Silver Slugger Award, uh, which they gave, they named last night. And I think he got chipped. Freddie Freeman got it, had better offensive numbers overall, except, of course, in the home runs and the RBI department. So, uh, you know, it's a half, six of one, half a dozen of the other, and uh, you just have to live uh, with certain stuff. Uh, Edgardo Alfonso answered the question, or you know, gave his opinion on why he was not retained as manager of the Brooklyn Cyclones. Um, as we said, uh, you know, uh, Brody wants to get his own guys in, and uh, he claims, uh, Brody did, that it was a player development move. And how you can say that when Alfonso wins the championship, that's pretty good development of players, I think. Uh, but being uh, said, being said, it really is uh, a question of Van Wagenen wanting to get his own people in there. Even Alfonso said that, and uh, he's not sure if he's going to stay in the organization. He'd like to remain in uniform. Uh, maybe the Mets should consider him for uh, the big job then uh, on the major league club. Maybe uh, give him a job as uh, the quality control coach or something or other. Uh, he may do a very fine job at that. So we'll have to see how that plays out as we keep rolling along uh, in the off season. Um, should be an interesting winter meetings coming up in about a month or so. See which direction the Mets, you know, are going to go. All kinds of rumors on the Internet, uh, you know, and everything. They're going to go after Rendon to Garrett Cole, to Strasburg, to Zach Wheeler, to, uh, you know, uh, Daniel Hudson. Um, it's just, it's all over the place right now. And 
nobody really knows what's in their thoughts or in their minds, and we we just gotta wait. You know, uh, sort thing today about uh, uh, would they trade? Um, Jeff McNeil, the Rays were looking at uh, Jeff McNeil last year. Could they be interested in him in again? And and maybe we could get uh, Kiermaier and somebody else uh, for him. Mookie Betts, can we put together a package of Syndergaard uh, to get Mookie Betts here for a year? You know, uh, everybody wants to fill its center field slot and those guys would probably be worth it. I, I personally, I'd like to see him get Redone. I'd like to see McNeil at third, I guess. And uh, actually, I'd like to see McNeil at second and Cano at third. And uh, you know, uh, that is if you don't get Redone, I should say. I'm all confused now. What did I? Yeah, Redone. Get Redone. Let him play third. Move McNeil a second. Cano can sit on a bench and ride as far as I'm concerned. Um, I don't know if they're going to do that. Uh, if they don't get Rendon, uh, Van Wagenen says he's got J.D. Davis. He's got McNeil to play third. Cano at second. Cano's not going anywhere. I know it, folks. Really what should happen if they don't sign a, th- a Rendon is move McNeil into second, and Cano should be moved to third. That's the way it should be. Finally got it straight. Get a little confused there. See what happens when you get old, you get confused. Um, and I think that that basically covers a lot of the stuff. There's not a lot of stuff going on right now. A lot of rumors and innuendos and uh, stuff flying around. Not, not innuendos, but a lot of stuff flying around and uh, nothing solid yet. Um, there is going to be the QBC again. That will be, I believe it's January 18th. No word on the site of it yet, uh, but uh, it will be uh, that uh, that date, January the 18th. All right, let's take a break, and we'll be back with uh, my tour of the um, exhibit, Home Play, the Celebration of the Polo Grounds at the Morris Jamel Mansion. Um And we'll be back after this. Looking for great Cardinals talk? Then check out Conversations with C70. My name is Daniel Shopdaw, and I talk with some of the great bloggers on the Internet today about their teams. It always goes back to the Cardinals. Find the latest episode on my website, www.cardinal70.com, or at baseballpodcast.net. Baseball and BBQ, your place for interesting baseball talk, opinions, and history. Baseball and BBQ, your place for barbecue recipes, tips, and interviews from the world of barbecue. If you like baseball and if you like barbecue, then tune in to Baseball and BBQ. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BaseballTalkRadio.com, along with Mets Musings and other great baseball podcasts. With all the Mets news, it is the news from around the world and around the corner. Here's Gary Mack. Well, I'd like to welcome everybody to the Morris Jamel Museum. Uh, my name is Neil Shearer. I'm a, actually an attorney, an art dealer, and a sports enthusiast. And the museum contacted me uh, if I can do a project based on an exhibition based on the Polo Grounds, being that the Polo Grounds are basically across the street from the muse- museum. 
So in this museum, I always say that has a pretty good batting order already with Washington and Hamilton and Jefferson. We think we add to it by bringing in Ruth, Mays, and Mantle. So <laughs> anyway, let's go on. Being that this is considered um, uh, uh, Coogan's Bluff, we might as well start with the miracle of Coogan's Bluff, one of the most famous moments, if not the most famous moment. So in 1951, the Giants and Dodgers finished tied at the end of the year, and they have to play a playoff. And some people don't remember that it was a two out of three, not a single playoff game. And in the deciding game, Bobby Thompson hits a home run off of Ralph Franco from my hometown of Mount Vernon, so it hurts me a little bit more than most people. And, and Russ Hodgson make, makes the famous call, the Giants win the pennant, Giants win the pennant. What we have here in, in this piece dis display is the record of him making that call inside the sleeve. In original wire photos, we showed Leo DeRocher can't love him enough, that is Bobby Thompson, and Bobby Thompson being serenaded by the fans who won't let him leave throughout the night. The rare ticket stub from the game and the program signed by the two players. What I found interesting was so many people anticipated the Dodgers winning and not the Giants. We have a program Dodgers playing the Yankees. And of course, it's the Giants playing the Yankees. If you know history, it's sort of our Dewey defeats Truman piece, as we call it. And my father was, this is from Brooklyn, and his honor, I put the way it should have been and the way it was. <laughs> so what you'll see throughout the show are displays that we created, and what we're trying to do is tell great stories that took place at the Polo Grounds, or, or revolve around the Polo Grounds in some fashion. And although a single autograph is great, a single ticket is great, uh, we think by putting a, a culmination of pieces together, especially rare and authenticated artifacts, uh, we tell a story, and Americans, I think, love, love story, and sports is certainly part of American culture. So now as we move on, uh, given just seven months to put the show together, I couldn't, put, I couldn't do all my displays, which usually take six months to a year to do. So here's some, uh, some smalls, as I call them. And of course, you have to have Jackie Robinson in any baseball show. And oh, he breaks the color barrier in 1947, as we know. And three days later, at the Polo Grounds, he hits his first home run. There's Monty Irvin and Hank Thompson, we show. They break the color barrier for the New York Giants in 1949. And Hank Thompson's actually interesting. Uh, a year or so earlier, he broke the color barrier for the St. Louis Browns. He's the only person I know of that broke the color barrier for two different teams. Wow. Now, when we think of uh, great moments in the polo grounds, and one person I wish I had done more to, you have to think of Willie Mays. And of course, in 1954, he makes a spectacular catch up of Vic Wirtz, who would have pro probably would have been a home run in every other park. In fact, I think um, some announcer or, or writer uh, mentioned that Mays would have made that catch in every park, including Yosemite. Right. <laughs> uh, now, the ticket that you see there is from 1951, and it's the, it's the year when the Yankees uh, beat the Giants. But I believe it's one of the few times where the playoff champion Giants, because of the Bobby Thompson home run, overshadows the actual World Series winning Yankees. Right. Now, I'd like to move over. We're going to move to, uh, to football for, for a minute here. Uh, people don't realize that there are a number of teams that played at the polo grounds. One of them is the New York football Giants that played there from 1925 to 1955. And if you're looking at my display, you'll note, you'll note that I have a sheet signed by almost all the players. If I'm simply in the memorabilia world, I would flip that and made my money, which probably is what I should have done. <laughs> Instead, I spent two years putting this sucker together. And what you see here are the programs from every game, or just about every game played in 1938. Wow. What I like to mention is, 
that they played teams called the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Brooklyn Dodgers that we usually oh, associate yeah. with baseball teams. Right. And the reason is football was a fledgling league. It was barely making it. And they, to get notoriety, they would try to piggyback off of the more successful baseball teams. Uh, here we see a picture of a very handsome young Wellington Mara. Oh, wow. uh, and his father, Tim Mara, bought the New York football giants in 1925. Does anybody want to guess how much they paid for the, 19, for the Giants? 125 bucks, something like that. But that's the first one. Anybody else want to give a guess? Uh, 25,000. 25,000. What do you say? Uh, 2,500. 2,500. 5,000. 5,000. The actual amount that the New York football Giants, the Maris paid, was the unheard of sum of $500. Okay. It's worth 300 billion now, so it's a pretty wow. good investment. Yeah, that's I will. I will say one thing though. Even though the 500 sounds like a you know a no-brainer, in that year 1925, they almost didn't make it. Almost went bankrupt. It wasn't until the last game of the season yeah. when the Chicago Bears and the Galloping Ghosts uh, comes into town uh, and they bring in 70,000 people and the. Giants and Maris said, maybe we have something here. <laughs> now, the other thing I'd like to point out, I'm a University of Wisconsin grad. Go Badgers, although they've looked terrible the last, thank, God, thank goodness they've been a week off this week. They looked terrible the last two weeks. But I miss college football in New York. And when we, th when we think of college football, even today we think of guys 280 pounds, 300 pounds, 325, certainly in the pros. Back then, we show the roster about uh, most of, if you were 210 or 215 back in 1938, you were a big guy. Uh, I love the fact here there was a guy named Tarzan White, great name from Alabama, was a guard at five foot nine. Maybe Al Tuvi could have played football back then. I don't, I don't know. In any event, um, again, we like to do that. Now, another thing I like to point is um, college, uh, generally, people think of the, the most important football game uh, ever played was the 1958 Giant uh, Colt team. I agree with that. The second one, I would also argue, was probably the Colts against the Jets in Super Bowl III. But I think the third most important college game ever played, or pro game ever played actually, was in 1930 at the Polo Grounds. It was between the New York Giants and, believe it or not, the Notre Dame All-Star team led by Newt Rockney. Wow. And why I thought it was so important was college football, believe it or not, was considered maybe a superior sport for a long time right. they, the, than the pro game. Right. So what happens is the Giants defeat them very easily. And Newt Rockney says after that game, I'm just happy my boys weren't hurt. Uh, it, it sprung after that game, Pro football was always considered the better sport, yeah. you know. But the sad part about that story was two months later, Newt Rockney was killed in a plane accident, and that was the last game he was a coach. Wow. Yeah. Now, yeah. when we think of college football, people don't realize Columbia had good football teams. Sid Lockman, uh, uh, Fordham, the, 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 the Seven Amendment Granite yeah. uh, with Vince Lombardi, and even NYU had a good football team. So we show that here with these programs. Imagine Alabama coming into the Polo Grounds. Imagine Georgia coming into the Polo Grounds. Harvard-Yale games were played there at Thanksgiving early on when they were important. Army-Navy games were played there. Notre Dame would come into town. It was a big deal. As a matter of fact, they outdrew the New York football giants in the 30s and 40s college football games. People can't believe that. So we want to show a little bit about that. Now let's get back to baseball. I know that's what you guys like, so let's get back to baseball. So on October 8, 1956, uh, we just passed the anniversary, Don Larson pitches the perfect game. And in our display, we first of all show a ticket. It's not an ordinary ticket, it's a full ticket. Those are pretty rare to, to come about. Then I like to show programs, but I scored, but I want it to be contemporaneous to the game, not somebody put it in like three months later or six years later. So we're pretty lucky about that. But look who signed my program. 
that Ed Sullivan? Ed Sullivan. Wow. So the question becomes, is it that Ed Sullivan? Kind of a common name. Right. And if it was, did he sign it at the game or later? Well, sometimes you get lucky with photographic evidence. I know you, you, your listeners can't see this, but we have a photograph showing uh, a, a Miss, Mr. Sullivan signing the program, wow. one of my programs there. He was actually a sports writer during that period mm -hmm. of time. So that's kind of interesting from a research point of view. Now, of course, we show Mickey Mantle makes a, a very important catch in that game to preserve the perfect game, as well as hitting the home run. And we show the original Daily News. This uh, the wire photo I found the most interesting facet of the whole game of the whole display. There's Don Larson signing a uh, a baseball, and who was he signing a baseball to? Branch Rickey. Close. You're in the right. You're in the, you're thinking correctly, but wrong. Any other guesses who that gentleman is? I will give you the hint that should, that should make it easy. The most hated man in Brooklyn. Oh, O'Malley. O'Malley. Okay. Yeah. So get this. His team just lost a perfect game. He's very he's smiling to get this autographed baseball. I cannot see George Steinbrenner asking Pedro Martinez for his autograph if he had done that. So I thought it was interesting. Now, what? But you know what? If you think about it, maybe Mr. O'Malley is showing financial savvy. Two years later, he will be taking out the beloved Dodgers to Los Angeles, and maybe he understood that that was a good financial move, even though it destroyed the hearts of Brooklynites. Yeah. And th if we could find that ball, I'm sure that ball is a $75,000 or $100,000 oh, yeah. ball. Yeah. So yeah. I thought that was interesting. Now the other thing is, you may be wondering, where's the time with the polo grounds? So, well, here it is. The, the, the scoreboard shows, uh, of course, the perfect game, but it shows the Giants are playing the Steelers at 2 p.m., the football Giants. Why that's so relevant, that's the first game the New York Giants will not be playing at the Polo Grounds. Now they'll be playing at Yankee Stadium. They'll be moving, as we'll find out many teams move uh, out of the Polo Grounds. So when we think of great pitching, oh, by the way, here's another thing. Babe Pinelli, one of the well-known uh, umpires, he retires after that game. As, as When we think of umpires generally, we think of controversial move, uh, the calls or bad calls. But from an umpire's point of view, I would suggest that his greatest moments are the being behind the plate for a perfect game or no hitter. Those are his milestones. So if he was going to retire, I can't believe it. Go out on top. Go out on top, right. Now, if we're going to be thinking of pitching a perfect games, we've got to think about the great Sandy Koufax. So here's our piece dealing with all four of his no hitters. As you know, when he retired so prematurely because of injuries, uh, uh, he, had, he was a leader with four no-hitters. His first no-hitter, believe it or not, was against the lowly Mets in 62. Uh, and a gentleman named Mel Steiner was the umpire. We want to give the umpire some credit here in, the, in this piece. I don't know if many people do. And Felix Montilla made the final out. His second no-hitter was much more challenging against the, Juan, the great Juan Marichal, the Giants. And Frank Walsh was the umpire. And you can see, this, we got his autograph on a baseball. Ah. Sometimes we did that. And Harvey Keene makes the final out. And then moving to the third no-hitter was in 64 against the Philadelphia Phillies. Ed Vargo's the umpire, and Bobby Wine makes the final out. And why Bobby Wine makes the final out, he foul tips the ball into the throat area of Ed Vargo. And Ed Vargo's in total pain, but he refuses to leave. And when you think, he didn't want to hurt the rhythm of Kofax. And when you think about it, that's very important. When you're doing that well, you don't want to hurt your rhythm. An umpire change could be 15, 20 minutes, who knows? Yeah. So I think, so Koufax, I thought in these original uh, sporting news, I believe, uh, news uh, print writes, yep. uh, thanks for a great game, Sandy Koufax to the umpire. <laughs> Maybe that's a little suspicious, I don't know, but I thought it was interesting. <laughs> well, if you think he liked Ed Vargo for that game, he must have loved him in 65. Ed oh, Vargo's the umpire in the perfect game. 
Wow. Many people will think it's the greatest game ever pitched because of the fact that Bob Henley, uh, the pitcher of the Cubs, uh, an okay pitcher, had his great day, pitched a one-hitter. So you had one hitter in a perfect game. You can't do much better than that. And believe it or not, Harvey Keene makes the final out wow. as he did in game two. Wow. And there's a great Kovacs. I'll make another little point about Kovacs. Um, he was probably the greatest Jewish baseball player. You could argue with Hank Greenberg and things like that, but certainly a pitcher. Let's put it that way. And in 1965, uh, in game one, it was Yom Kippur. And Kovacs, not, not super religious, but a person of tradition, thought he would he, he thought it would just be right not to play in that game, and he did not play. And who replaced him? Don Drysdale. Don Drysdale. And what happens in that game? Drysdale gets bombed. Has a terrible game. Of course, he's a great pitcher, but he gets bombed, and that happens sometimes. And Walter Olson, as he comes to take the ball away from Drysdale, what does Drysdale say? I'm converting as No, he said, I bet you wish I was Jewish too. <laughs> <laughs> so in any event, in any event, I bring that up. Because essentially, as a Jewish kid, I found this interesting. Three weeks ago, in the in the uh, in the ALCS and the NLCS, three games were played with Jewish players. Right. They all played, and they all lost. Right. And I so my friends have come up to me, Neil. They broke God's rule. They played on Yom Kippur. I said, No, no, much worse than that. They broke Kofek's rule. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, anyway, so as we as bad as the Mets were in '62, they went in '69 and '86. And here is our piece that we pay homage to the 86 team. We have all the tickets for the seven games against the Red Six. Some lucky fan who must have sat in that seat in, at Chase Stadium in 1964, the backing of it. The famous play where Bill Buckner goes between his legs and Mookie Wilson, of course, does that. And I'm always amazed nobody gets hurt in these scrams, uh, 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 <laughs> the, uh, these pylons after we win a championship. This is poor guy. I don't know if that's Mazzilli or who that is, but there's one guy in the bottom who I can't believe he survived that. Um, and again, we have various tickets from opening day to when it clinched the pennant and all that other stuff. Now, what's interesting, many people don't know that the Mets and the Jets both played in the polo grounds in the early 60s. The Mets played 62 and 63, yeah. and the New York Jets played from 60 to 64. And, and so we have a little area here that you can see if you come to the show. We, by the way, we hope everybody comes to the show. I'm here generally on weekends giving tours. and. Uh, what we, what we have here are programs from the from the Jets and the Mets from and during the time they played at 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 the, the Polo Grounds before they went to Shea Stadium. Here we have a ticket. Uh, I think this is one of the most interesting items, single items that we have. So on December seventh, nineteen forty one, America's attacked at Pearl Harbor, and at the Polo Grounds, the New York Giant football team is playing the Brooklyn Dodger football team um, with fifty five thousand people in attendance. Unlike today, and this makes it with technology's advancements, where cell phone texting, we would think everybody would know about the, that we are at war within minutes of the game, right. or certainly by the first quarter. Nobody knew that we were war until they went home that day. Wow. Uh, there were some indications at halftime, apparently, that on the loudspeaker, they would say, Regiment 37, please report to headquarters, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody was thinking about Paul. How can they? Yeah. Right. So, in, you know, so in any event, I find that very interesting uh, part of the Polo Grounds history and American history. Can I just uh, go back to you? One sure. Second? Any questions? Let me know. That seat. Yes. Do you know what section it was from? You know, I, I would like to know. I don't believe it has that uh, information. Uh, I'm thinking 
uh, you know, knowing it's from knowing the mezzanine. No, but it's from the but I was that's what I was thinking. Knowing the seats that I would get would be very high up. You know, knowing my history. I, but, I only yeah. asked because I had tickets for years in the mezzanine mm. at Shea Stadium, and I had seats number one, two, three, and four. No, no that's oh, that's maybe, I got seat. maybe we had something. Maybe it's your seat. You might have been the guy sitting in that I seat. Might have had my now let me ask you: were, were you at any There's of the games? Mustard dripping right there. There, there you go. There you go. Was your seat? There's beer there too, and that's mine. Now, by the uh, by the way, were any of you guys at any? those seven I games. was at game one and seven of the World wow, Series. Wow, wow, congratulations. I was at game two at the World Series. Now, that, that's fantastic. There's nothing like... I was uh, in college in Ohio. Uh, as a matter of fact, as I've told people, I think it's the time to let you know, the reason why this whole idea basically came about was because of a game seven, but it was a bad game seven for me. It was in 2004 when uh, the Red Sox came out of nowhere to sweep the Yankees after they'd been at 3-0. Yeah. And, and um, I, my brother, who I had season tickets with, couldn't stand it, so he left about the fifth or sixth inning. Usually the Yankees can make a rally, but this was, seemed like it, there was no yeah, chance. Yeah. And uh, by the end of the game, it was almost all Red Sox fans. And I, trying to be nice, I went up and I congratulated them. I got a few curse words levied at me, but most of the people were like very thankful that I did that. And they told me, they said, I wish my father was around. I wish my grandfather, I wish yeah, my uncle. And, it, and what I did at that point was I took a ticket from that game and I sent it to my best, friend's, um, from, uh, my best friend from University of Wisconsin father, who was a diehard Red Sox fan, a great art collector, by the way. I'm an, I happen to be an art dealer, too. And he said to me, um, when I framed it nicely, and I wrote, uh, hope you enjoy it. Nobody deserves it more than you. Remember to enjoy it. It, only, it happens only once every 86 years. <laughs> and he contacted me and he said, Neil, gosh, it's the greatest gift I've ever gotten. Don't tell my wife, but it was up to me. I tossed the artwork aside, which <laughs> my major artwork, Hopper and Mondrian's, and put this in a place of honor deserves. Yeah. And I knew he was joking, but not completely. Yeah. And that's when I said, if I can do something to show history in a way that I think everybody likes, sports fans, uh, history nuts, art lovers, uh, average version of triple play in a sense, I thought we have something. And I, and, and I hope your listeners come here and, and, and see if they agree with me and what we've done here. Now let's get him back into the tour here. We have the great Lou Gehrig, who unfortunately disease took his life. It was named after him, basically. And what you see here are all the tickets from every World Series game wow. Lou Gehrig hit a home run in. Wow. And underneath it is the autographs of the pictures he hit the home runs wow. off of. Jeez. And what I found, of course, the connection is his last home run was against Carl Hubble here at the Polo Grounds. Uh -huh. um, there, and by the way, uh, imagery is very important to me. So I wanted to, of course, take a, a, a likable, happy Lou Gehrig. I just wanted to let you know that's not a photograph. That's a painting of Lou Gehrig. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know we got a lot of wows from it. Yeah. Also, to tell you the truth, one of the big, uh, besides finding these things, which take forever, uh, they also, um, by the way, I work, a little, I work with a gentleman named Paul Malk who's very helpful on, on these matters, on, on these pieces here. He's a teacher in Virginia, by the way. So anyway, what we do here is we, um, we put, we, uh, uh, these autographs take forever to put together and what we do is we also do have to get them authenticated we use James Spencer used by Major League Baseball and most of the time we, we're pretty lucky and we get we get things right but the Lou Gehrig autograph was wrong the first one we did oh. and that's like an $8,500 hit yeah. you know and for for us the, the, the money was a big nuisance but the, the even the bigger problem was the amount of time we lost putting it together so anyway, um, this, by the way, autograph is correct, and there's a picture of the great Lou Gehrig, and we think a uh, very special player. Uh, the hardest autograph, if you want to know, 
uh, so Lou Gehrig is getting a guy like Grover Cleveland Alexander. Yeah. Now, is, now we go to a different decade, my father's favorite hero, the great Mickey Mantle. And, and, and here we have, he had, by the way, in 1968, my father took me to a game against the Orioles when Mantle hit a home run, so I was really fortunate, I think. So anyway, the, we have all tickets from every, he has 18, uh, uh, he has a record for most home runs in World Series plays, so this piece pays homage to that. We have a ticket from every single World Series game Mantle hit a home run in, and underneath it is the autograph of the pitchers he hit the home runs off of. Wow. And what I'd like to point out to you guys is, when you're playing against the World Series, you're not only going against the best teams, you're going against the best pitchers. So Sandy Koufax, who we spoke about, Bob Gibson, who we spoke, oh, who yeah. is there, uh, Preacher Rowe, Sal Magley, Lou Burdett. So I think these are pretty special. And again, presentation is very important mm -hmm. to us. Another thing I'd point out about mantles, I've had many people come to me and said, you know, I, I hated the Yankees, but I love Mickey Mantle. And when you think about it, there are very few players. Usually, you hate you hate the team. You hate the team. You hate the whole team. I think. Derek Cheater might be an exception. Maybe Michael Jordan might be an exception. But generally, he, he must have had so much charisma that when he came up, he was very special. So anyway, we're about halfway into the, to, to the show. I hope you guys like it so far. You want to continue? Absolutely. Okay, we're in the fourth yeah. Okay. Hell yeah! Okay. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to go more to the Yankee. First of all, Zanarto, I wanted to give you an imagery of the Polo Grounds at Yankee Stadium. And here is the, the, um, the piece dealing uh, by Ben Gantz uh, showing Polo Grounds and Yankee Stadium. It wasn't that close, but it was definitely walking distance. It's always been a kind of a mystery to me how, the, how when John McGraw kicked out the Yankees, how he could possibly let them go basically across the street. Across the street. You, know, uh, you know, if you hate Ruth that much, you shouldn't, you shouldn't want him across the street. You, should want him, you wish he did a Walter O'Malley thing and took him to Los Angeles. <laughs> anyway, let's go over here. I'm old enough to remember that if you sat at Yankee Stadium from a yeah. certain vantage point, you could see yeah. the polo grounds. You know what, I, I've been curious, and I don't know if anybody here knows, did people ever go to what I would call a city doubleheader? Did they ever play games in a day at oh. night where they, people would go from one game to another? I was young. so uh, Yeah, I'm just curious. But anyway, I should, do, I should look into that. Here's the piece of Roger Maris breaking Babe Ruth's record. And, and to me... I consider it still the record at 61. Uh, people come here and argue with me about the steroid value uh, and how that affects it. For me, I, I believe Maris is, the, is still the guy, but that may just be me. So anyway, here's his 60th home run uh, that we show in a wire photo of being greeted by Elston Howard, uh, first black Yankee. Can you imagine how he felt touching home plate knowing he tied Babe Ruth? There he is hitting the 61st side by Maris, the great Babe Ruth original autograph the ticket from 1927 that Dave Ruth had a 60th home run. Wow. The program from Maris' 60th home run scored by somebody at the game. The program from Maris' 61st home run scored by somebody at the game. The ticket from his 60th, ticket from his 61st. We tell the story of Roger Maris breaking Babe Ruth's record. Wow. And if that's not enough, guys, on the program we have Tracy Sowers' autograph, the pitcher, and Sal Durante who caught the ball. I think that's about as complete as you can get. Wow. And by the way, just to let you know, um, uh, these pieces take from, you know, six months to years to complete. We really work hard on them. And uh, if you see the name Neil Shearer, uh, generally that means it's still available or it's my collection. But some of them I have sold and, and my clients are all over the country and they're nice enough to loan it for the show. But I will tell you this, they contact me often. When am I getting it back? When am I getting it back? When is the show over? <laughs> so I tell people to come over to see the show before you might not see these again. Anyway, here we go to a really incredible piece. Uh, and what we, this is the 27 Yankees. And what you see here are the autographs of Bob Musel, 
uh, Earl Combs, Babe Ruth. We did it like a outfield. Oh, okay. The third base was Duke and shortstop Koenig. Second base was Larry. First base was Garrick. The catchers, the pitchers. The four ticket steps that, that uh, as they swept the Pirates, were lucky to go five, six, or seven. It might have taken another couple of years to put these <laughs> things together. The program of, of, of showing the two managers. And this is interesting. The check, signed by Colonel Jacob Rupert, co-signed by Ed Barrow, to a gentleman, Johnny Nee. We'll get to that in a second. And a press pass just to Lewis Hallbrand, another way to get in the stadium. What I thought was interesting when, I, when, when this was put together, and I looked at it later, later on, is what you see are Garrick had some college experience, Combs had some college experience, Benny Bengout at Niagara, but most of these players did not even finish high school or, or got you know, uh, maybe 10th or 11th grade. Right. And yet, look how beautiful writing was. And I hear cursive writing is coming out of style or not even taught anymore, and I think it's a big big mistake because it tells our personality. Mm. I've tried to reach out to handwriting experts. Maybe you guys can agree with my observation or not. If you look at Babe Ruth's signature so close to Lou Gehrig's, you can feel the different personalities. Yeah. Ruth, bold, dynamic, yeah. charismatic. Yeah, Lou Gehrig, shy and elegant. Can't you yeah. see that? Yeah. And, and I, we, it was just lucky that the autographs are right close to each other so we can, we can see that observation. Getting back to the uh, Jacob Rupert check here, it's issued to a guy named Johnny Nee, spelled N-E-E. -E. And why that's important was Johnny Nee was a chief scout for the Yankees. He would sign guys like Bill Dickey. In my fantasy world, I'm thinking that the $250 was used to sign Bill Dickey, but that's, we don't know that. <laughs> it, being that it's the end of the month, it's probably his monthly or something to do with that. $250 is not bad back then. So I think this is really... Now, another thing as we go through the show, the two things they didn't tell me about when I came here was, one, uh, that there's no air conditioning, but it's okay, we're in the fall. But two, the lighting is not very good. So at first, we got to keep this down a little bit. They didn't want me to use a flashlight of any sort. But when I told them I got Bobby Thompson's bat and I cut it down and <laughs> put this in here, they, they let me bring it in here. So anyway, you'll see me with this bat whenever, whenever you come to the museum giving the tour. Now speaking of, oh, going back to Roger Maris again, what we have here are the, are the autographs of every pitcher Maris got a home run off of in 1961. Wow. Yeah, and what's interesting is, uh, although there's some really cool signatures, you could start to see them getting sloppier than they are in the 1920s, which are more elegant, I think. Now here is, we show a picture of his first home run off of Paul Foytak, his last off of a dejected Tracy Stallard. The kid who caught the ball, to me, looks a lot like Billy Martin. Yeah, Billy yeah. yeah. Martin. You know, and, and, and he, of course, he made $5,000, but from what I understand, he, he bought a house, and I think he even got, went on a honeymoon or something like that. <laughs> now, here you could see the pressure and stress the, with these photographs that we show of Maris, you could see in this photo as he looks at the the the, the, the um, statue or uh, plaque of Babe Ruth, he's almost haunted as he takes on the roof. And reports are he lost uh, a lot of hair and that. For full yeah. disclosure, it's the only thing I have in common. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, here are the public. Here's something I always recommend. We have a, a sheet here, an illustration, cartoon kind of thing showing all the magical, famous moments that happen at the polo grounds. Now, here's the great Joe DiMaggio. And we have all the tickets from his World Series home runs. And we also have the autographs of the pictures he had the home run. And of course, this last one, similar to Lou Gehrig's, was, was, was at the Polo Grounds off of Style Magley. But what I found interesting was, when, I put, when we put this together, was the fact that not one of Joe DiMaggio's World Series home runs was hit at Yankee Stadium. They're all around. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So what, I, what I reminds me of is that famous night that I... Well, whether it occurred or not, it, it, it makes sense in some ways. When at two chores, Mr. Yawkey of the Red Sox and I think Dan Topping of the Yankees 
got drunk and traded Williams with the Magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? It's not that far-fetched. When you think of that, it, it could have worked. Could you imagine what DiMaggio would have done with the Green Monster and what wow. Williams would have done with the Short Porch? It's pretty crazy. Now, the other thing is when we brought these things uh, into the show, um, I, uh, unfortunately, this, paint, this piece had been damaged. Uh, the glass had broken, and you could see a little, I have to work on it, a little repair here. So I told people that night, I have good news if you're a DiMaggio fan and bad news. The good news is this 56-game hitting streak has not been broken. The bad news how display has been. So anyway, but it's here now for everybody who wants to come. Now we have a little area here. Deal. By the way, how, do you, how are you liking the show so far? I'm loving it. Okay, great. Great. We have a lot of visitors here, but we want more. So hopefully you guys will uh, spread the word and we'll have more people here to see this, I think, special show. Some people have called it New York City's Cooperstown. Whether it is or not, I think it's a great, great show for baseball fans, sports, and, and art lovers. Anyway, um, what I'd like to show here are some individual players and, 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 uh, who had some uh, importance of the polo grounds. Uh, for example, Eddie Grant, very little know about him. He was, uh, went to Harvard, so it's called Harvard Eddie. He would say, I have it, instead of I got it, because that's proper English. Uh, but, but more of a, uh, poor, poor Eddie Grant is the first ball player to die in World War I. And there was a memorial at the polo grounds where uh, for many, many years, when it, was just, when it was knocked down, it was lost for a while, and that, that's our little pains, little respect to, to Eddie Grant. Now, here's the great uh, Christy Mathewson, a Bucknell graduate, a chess and checkers champion, who I, in my own belief, would think would have visited the Morris Chamel Museum. Being an intellectual that he would, I think he would like to know the history of Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton, who, by the way, at this museum, the play Hamilton, which is so popular, Lynn Miranda, who I wrote it, uh, was, give, was allowed to sit in the Aaron Burr seats. Uh, Aaron Burr lived here for a while, and he was able to write his play, um, uh, two weeks of it anyway, at, at, at the Aaron Burr room wow. here. Yeah. Of course, they don't give me that respect. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's still a great city. But anyway, Chrissy Madison, Big Six, as he was called, um, unfortunately had uh, also a, a bad experience. He went to, uh, in World War I, Basically, more, more or less a friendly fire incident. Mustard gas went off near him, and it affected him. He died at the age of 45. Mm. It's amazing. He, what he would have done with his life, I think, would have been really interesting. Uh, another interesting fact, right next to him when the, when the mustard gas went off was Ty Cobb. It didn't affect Cobb at all. It's just amazing. Here's an, a person I think really gets lost in, in history and shouldn't be. is Roger Connor. Uh, he was Babe Ruth before Babe Ruth. When he retired at the turn of the century, he had 138 home runs, and... Um, was by far the leader. He, um, that because 20, and it lasted 23 years before Ruth not, didn't just beat it, destroyed it. And I think that's why uh, Mr. Connor is not well known, but I think he should be. And there's, one, there's a thought, because the Giants were called the Gothams before they were the Giants. And he was always called the Giant. He was six foot three. There's some thought that the word Giants came because of Mr. Connor. I don't know that for sure, but there's some thought about that. We bring Mel Ott, we bring Fred Mer uh, Bonehead Merkel, one of the most crazy plays of all time. The only thing I can think about it that's somewhat similar to my, uh, during my li uh, uh, livelihood is the George Brett incident when George Brett went nuts. But I think that pales in comparison to what happened here when uh, the little bit about it is a 19-year-old kid. He's playing it, he's starting his first game. He gets a single to, to move Moose McCormick from, uh, to, from first to third. Then a guy named Al Bridgman, I believe, gets a single to drive in Moose McCormick. The crowd goes crazy. Frank Chance is the manager of the Cubs. He decides that um, 
that uh, he says to the manager, Hank O'Day, that um, uh, 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 that that uh, Mr. Merkel did not touch second base. Probably didn't, but it was kind of commonplace. However, interestingly enough, if I understand, Frank Chancellor told Hank O'Day this two weeks earlier in another game against Pittsburgh. So, meanwhile, Frank, o Frank Chance and John McGraw are just yelling at each other and arguing. Christy Matheson supposedly is trying to push, get Merkel to go to second. Uh, the ball comes into the field where supposedly Joe McGinnity, the, 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 the pitcher, throws it into the stands. Whatever happened, we don't know, uh, or, or at least I haven't gotten a real definite decision. However, after him going to the locker room and thinking about it, Hank O'Day says, out. Well, they're, they're, this is 1908. They don't have lights. Right. It's dark. They can't do the game. No replay. No replay. <laughs> I wish we had. If we could have a replay of anyone, that would be a great one to have. So anyway, um, they replay the game a little while, a couple weeks later, I believe. And Christy Madison doesn't have his best game. And the Cubs win. And that would be their last World oh, Series till the, the, the one in 2016. Uh, so I found that really interesting. The other interesting thing is, you guys are baseball nuts out there, uh, um, Hank O'Day is quite interesting. About six years later, he becomes the manager of the Cubs. Hank O'Day is the only player in baseball history to be a player, manager, and umpire. umpire. Wow. Well, I thought he went to Hall of Fame as an umpire. Uh, he may very well uh, umpire. Well, the, the Burkle thing, yeah. they probably put him in the whole thing just so right. he could explain what happened because they couldn't. <laughs> but anyway, let's go on. Um, to, uh, this would that be considered a conflict of interest today to go from umpire to? Uh, I don't think so. If you were, if you quit and you, if you were, uh, if you went there and still were the manager, oh, okay. part and were the manager, then it would be conflict of interest. Now, some of the other great aspects of the polo grounds are the, the great fights that took place here. Uh, people in night. I'm, as an art dealer, I don't know, uh, or, or an art lover. There's a famous artist, George Bellows, who does a famous uh, painting of Dempsey going through the ropes. I think it's like in the top two or three most important paintings in American history. It's based on the Louis Ferbo Jack Dempsey fight that took place at the Polo Grounds in 1921. 78,000 people, something like that. And although Dempsey goes through the ropes, he later comes back and wins the fight. By the way, it's on YouTube. You can actually watch it. It's the most brutal fight I've ever seen. Unlike today, where you have to go to, uh, away for the, for the tent camp, yeah. you just hovered over the guy and he gets up and you start whacking him again. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but there were nine knockdowns in two rounds. Then, of course, we have the Joe Lewis-Billy Kahn fight. Billy Kahn's upsetting Joe Lewis. He's ahead on all scorecards. He's, he, he's frustrating Lewis. He's beating him. If he just stays away the last three rounds, he wins the fight. But he tries to knock out Lewis. Lewis knocks him out at the end of Billy Kahn. You can see him being knocked out there. The, the last fight I'm going to talk about is the Floyd Patterson Ingemar Johansson fight in 1960, where Floyd Patterson defeats Johansson. The year earlier at Yankee Stadium, Johansson had defeated him. This is the first time a heavyweight regains his heavyweight championship. So that's interesting. And the final piece of this tour. I hope so far so good. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a freshman at the University of Wisconsin, 1978. My two roommates are Red Sox fans, believe it or not, so you know how we get along. Anyway, the Yankees and Red Sox finish tied at the end of the year, and they have to play a one-game playoff as opposed to a, uh, a two out of three, which was with the Bobby Thompson. Incidentally, incidentally, if I go back for one second, we think of Fred, Fred Bonehead Merkel as uh, Bonehead, and I think history has, has been unfair to him personally. However, when I learned that Charlie Dressen won the coin flip and deferred the last two games to the polo grounds when he could have had home field advantage. I think that's an I think he could have been a bonehead. However, 
after this World Series, maybe the home field advantage is not of importance anyway. Yeah. So you got to win. But I, I, you know, you saw how the Astros and the Yankees played so hard to the last day, just give up the one day. And as I said, this was sort of, and I believe this year was an anomaly. I mean, it's only yeah. so only the first time, not only in baseball history, but in hockey and basketball, that that all games have been won by the visiting team. That's why it will always be called, as far as I'm concerned, and it's not that creative, the home field disadvantage series. Yeah. You know. So anyway, getting back to Bucky Dent, he hits that dramatic uh, home run. It's a, it's different also because he does it like in the fifth or sixth inning as opposed to Bobby Thompson ending the game. But it was in many ways. Uh, interesting because nobody ever thought he was he would hit a home run. From my own remember remembrance of that was watching Yastrzemski sort of collapse in left field, and you couldn't believe that 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 ball went over the fence. So what we have here, forevermore, he uh, he writes about that whole incident, and forevermore he's called Bucky F and Dent in Boston. Yeah. So he signs that way. Mike Torres, by the way, had won the World Series with the Yankees a year, a year prior. So anyway, here are all the Red Sox who played in that game on 78 cards. We don't always use cards, but we thought so that all these cards. Don Zimmer, who you know most of us think is the bench coach for Joe Torre, was the manager, and there's a ticket from the game. Greg Nettles jumping up for joy up on Yastrzemski's final out. I've always wondered if you talk to uh, – I always thought a cool book would be if you talk to great major leaguers and you said, if you could have one at bat again, what would it be? I am almost sure in Yastrzemski's case it would have been this one. He would like to have that one again. Yeah, but it would be interesting to talk to great players and see what they thought about if they get one bat again. I'm sure he, Carlos Beltran is going to that yeah, question. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's, he, might get, he might get that question the next day or two. Yeah. Anyway, here's Bucky Dent being greeted by his, his, his teammates Roy White and Chris Chambliss. And there again are all the Yankees. What's interesting, Bob Lemon started the year as the manager of the White Sox. Billy Martin got fired for the 10,000th time again, and he takes over. So we kept his actual card as a White Sox, even though he's the manager of the Yankees, but when the, when the World Series. And, of course, the late Thurman Munson dies tragically in, wow. in, in a plane accident. So you can see we, we think we put a pretty good uh, display here dealing with that uh, piece. And uh, anyway, uh, if you have any questions or thoughts, or hopefully you enjoyed it. This is great. This is great, yeah. And that was the tour of the Baseball Celebration of the Polo Grounds Home Plate Baseball Exhibit at the Morris Jamel Mansion with Neil Shear. Uh, it, it was great. We really had a great time. Uh, uh, go check it out. You'll you'll enjoy it immensely. All right, I'll be back right after this. Hey, baseball fans and book fans as well. This is Frank Nappy, author of the Legend of Mickey Tussler series inviting all of you to learn more about my protagonist, Mickey Tussler, an incredible pitching prodigy who has autism. Follow Mickey's journey as he captures the hearts of fans everywhere with his blazing fastball and indomitable spirit. Please visit Amazon or www.franknappy.com for more information. Hi, this is the world-famous Mr. Brewtown of BrewtownSports.Potomatic.com. You know, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Plus. Uh, Brewtown Sports, you can also listen to the show at Stitcher.com, TuneIn.com, and iTunes.com. And we've got the new one. It's called BrewtownRadio.Webley.com. But the one that I'm most proud of being on is BaseballPodcast.net. It is the home of great baseball talk shows. Check it out, my show and all kinds of other programs all about Major League Baseball. So check it out. That's BaseballPodcast.net, the home for great baseball talk shows. 
516-619-6341. That is the comment voicemail hotline if you'd like to be a part of the show and drop us a line leave us a comment or a voicemail question anything at all call that number 516-619-6341 or go to metsmusings.com and click on that widget in the middle of the screen and that's a speak pipe and you can leave a voicemail right through your computer through your computer's microphone or if you prefer to do things the old-fashioned way, send us an email at metsmusings at gmail.com. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash groups slash metsmusings. And the Twitter handle is at metsmusings1. And uh, if you'd uh, like to help out the show, check out our Patreon page. Check out the campaign at patreon.com slash metsmusings. And I hope that you enjoyed that uh, little tour at the Morris Jamel Mansion. You know, it's an interesting place to go to, even if there isn't a baseball exhibit. It's one of the oldest mansion or the oldest man- mansion in Manhattan. And it's very haunted. It's been mentioned on numerous uh, uh, of these ghost shows on television. The Hostlophile uh, ghost adventures were there. Uh, they run paranormal um, tours, I believe it is, uh, every once in a while. So it's really an interesting place and uh, just terrific to see what the lifestyle is back. So uh, back in time. Uh, so you can go check it out even if there's not a baseball exhibit. But there's a baseball exhibit running till January 5th. And I urge you all to go check it. Morris Jamel Mansion. You can find out more information at morrisjamel.org. Find out all the information there, the times, and all of that kind of thing. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank uh, my uh, guest, Nick Shear, and I want to thank the guys uh, from Baseball and Barbecue, Jeff and Len, for including me on this little road trip that we did together. And I want to thank you all for listening. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you listen to or, uh, or watch the podcast. Hit the subscribe button. That helps me grow the show and expand to new listeners. And uh, next more, more Met News next week. And until next time, remember to keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. See you next time on another edition of Met.